So he says that they're not saved. And then he says, because I can attest that they have a zeal for God. So they're zealous for the things of God. They're desiring for the things of God. But then Paul says, but it is not according to knowledge. So in one sense, knowledge is very important. Knowledge about who our God is and what he has done and the kind of God that he is is very important. Specifically, the things that we're going to be talking about tonight with his attributes and specifically the Trinity. These things are very important for us to know so that we can make sure that we're worshiping God rightly. Um, But knowledge is not the absolute end goal that we're working towards. Love is. Because here at FBC now, we're about, we, we just learned last Sunday, right? We, we exist to glorify God by working together to make disciples who change the world. And so this whole process is a disciple-making process. This is part of that mission statement that we just revealed last week. This is part of making disciples. And Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Not how much you know. Not all the doctrines that you can spout off and explain. Not, you know, how many research papers you can write in seminary. It's the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And so the end goal in all this is love. That's what we're pushing towards. We want you to love God more and to love others uh, like your neighbor, just like Jesus says. So something interesting I want you to look at is right here, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through seven. So, so look at this chain here. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Knowledge is kind of at the low, low end of the totem pole here. After the disciple of Jesus has supplemented his faith with everything that's necessary, he's going to end up loving. Love is the goal. Love is the end point that we are working towards. The fully devoted follower of Christ is going to love God and he's going to love others. So that's what we're working towards. Um, That's what we we want to do here. Um, And so I hope that uh, you guys um, are pushed to love God and to love others. And so before we get started, we're going to pray. And as we pray, what I'm going to be praying is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to receive anything today, if, if the word of God is going to be implanted upon your heart, if you are going to retain anything today, if the eyes of your heart are going to be open to see anything new about God, God is going to be the one to do it. It's not going to be my teaching. It's not going to be a scripture verse that you see up here. It's not going to be um, anything that I have to say or anything that you may read in your books during the week. God is going to be the one to open your hearts. So let's pray and ask God to reveal himself to us in this time. Father, um, we have gathered here because we desire to know more about you. Um, We desire to know more about what you've done. Um, From the beginning of redemptive history at your creation um, all the way until Christ returns. We, we want to look at each thing along the way and we want to know what it is that we've been called to be a part of. Um, so God, would you be pleased to send your spirit uh, to this room to fill me as I speak because God, I so need it. To fill these people as they hear uh, so that they can receive it. Um, God, you're, you say that your word will not return void, that your purpose you will fulfill And so, God, I I know and I believe and I know what the scripture says about how much you want to be known by your creation. 
So God, would you be faithful and would you be pleased to come here today to reveal yourself to us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So the first thing we're going to be discussing is the Trinity. Um, the very first instance that you see of the Trinity is, is right in Genesis 1, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later on in verse 27, he says, let us make man in our image, right? So that us is God talking, and the us refers to that there's obviously more than one person there. And so some people have said, hey, that's, that maybe that's angels, but we know that it's not angels. We know that God is talking about himself because right after that he says, in the image of God, he created them. So he says, let us make man in our image. And he says, in the image of God, he created them. It doesn't say in the image of God and angels that he created them. In the image of God, he created them. So the very first instance that we see of the Trinity right there in Genesis 1. Um, now, the Trinity is the most foundational um, probably one of the most uh, controversial doctrines that we hold. Because, you know, there are other religions out there, um, Islam and Judaism and so forth, they say, hey, we believe in one God. And they look at what we say about our God being three and one, and they say, no, you believe in three gods. Um, but and it, as confusing as it may be, and, and it is a mystery, so let me get that out, out front right now. This is a mystery. And we can't fully exhaust understanding the Trinity and exactly what it means. There aren't any illustrations that I can give you that are going to be able to perfectly click in your mind exactly what the Trinity is and how it works. Because it is a little bit confusing and it is a mystery. Um, But there are things about the Trinity that we do know. I'm reminded of the verse where Paul says, look, for now we see in a mirror dimly. We see in a mirror darkly. So the things that we know about God, there's, there's a bit of a shadow there. There's a fog. We can't see perfectly clearly. But the thing is, we do see. We do see certain things, and we have to testify to what we've seen. So whenever we are summarizing the doctrine of the Trinity, we can summarize it into three statements. That God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is one God. And So we're going to take each one of those statements, and we're going to break them down. But first, I want to show you this illustration here. Um, again, this isn't a perfect illustration, but in a way it kind of does help us to understand a little bit of how the Trinity works. So the father is not the son. So God, the father is not God, the son, God, the son is not God, the Holy spirit and God, the Holy spirit is not God, the father. They are each distinct persons. Okay. But the father is God. The son is God and the Holy spirit is God. So there are three, three distinct persons, but one essence. So check this verse out. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we understand the word to be Jesus Christ. That's who John is talking about. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Okay, so Jesus is with God in heaven. But then he says, and the word was God. So they're obviously one person. So two distinct, but one person. And here, we we understand the Holy Spirit is distinct, because he says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So you see that, The Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son are all distinct. They all have distinct actions and things that they do. Um, But yet again, they are all one. Um, 
And also we see a distinction in the Holy Spirit and the Father because what, is the, what does it say the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us whenever we don't know what to say, whenever we don't know what to pray, whenever we don't know what to bring to God, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So he is interceding for us before the Father. So that shows that the Father and the Holy Spirit are two distinct people because the Holy Spirit is interceding for us to the Father that he's interceding to. So there's two distinct actions going on there. And now the, the, the Trinity is most clearly seen in, 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 at Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So we have Jesus being baptized, we have the spirit of God descending and then behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So you, see, you have Jesus Christ being baptized, you have the spirit descending and you have the father speaking. You have the full Trinity right there in action. Now, so we understand that the Trinity is three distinct people, okay, three distinct persons, but also each of these persons are God. So the Father is clearly God. God the Father is clearly God. We understand that from Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have the Father being referred to as Father God or God the Father. I mean, that that is very clear. That's that's not something that we really need to spend a lot of time on tonight. But what may not be exactly clear is that Jesus Christ is God and the Holy Spirit is fully God. So go back to, um, to uh, John 1.1 again that we looked at earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is saying that Jesus Christ is God, that he is fully God. Also, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. And then in verse 8, this is God talking in verse 8. But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And, now, and that's interesting because you have God the Father speaking of God the Son, and he calls God the Son, God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Um, now, also, the Holy Spirit is fully God, and we see this in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. So, we understand that God the Father is fully and completely God, God the Son is fully and completely God, and God the Holy Spirit is fully and completely God. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Um, but they are each three distinct people. Now listen, I know that that's confusing. And I know that it's, it may not be making much sense. Um, but this is what the scriptures teach. And so we, we have to affirm it. Um, so on top of that, the third statement, if you remember, there is one God. So God is three distinct persons. Each of these three distinct persons are God. And there is one. Only one God. And this is made very clear um, in the Shema. This is one of the most famous verses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, And that declaration is made constantly throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 3 that God is one. He is one, one being. So there is, in a nutshell, basic nutshell, okay? I mean, the whole entire books and seminary courses and people's lives have been devoted to fleshing out this doctrine. So in a nutshell, you have it right there. That is the Trinity. That is our God. Our God is three in one. He is three distinct persons. Each of those three distinct persons is fully God and God is one. So 
now we're about to get into a few of the attributes. So what you need to understand whenever we discuss these attributes is that each and every single one of these attributes that we're about to look at applies to each and every single member of the Trinity. So they equally apply to God the Father, equally apply to God the Son, and equally apply to God the Holy Spirit. So um, the first one we're going to talk about is God's eternality. And here's a basic definition for God's eternality. God has always existed, having no beginning and no end, and experiencing no succession of moments. God exists outside of time. I'm sure you probably have heard that statement made that way. God exists outside of time. Um, Look here in Psalm 90, verse 2. This is where we kind of get the the biggest treatment of this um, in the scriptures. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever your hand had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And also in verse in Job 36, 26, the number of his years is unsearchable. So God exists outside of time from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Before anything was formed, you are God. Now, if, if, if you do any kind of studying into like physics or anything like that, what you'll learn is that time cannot exist without space and matter. Okay, so before creation, before anything was formed, God was, right? So upon his creation, time came into existence as well. So that can only mean logically that God exists outside of time. Now, because he is eternal. And also, God sees all time as equally uh, vivid, I guess you could say. He, he, because he exists outside of time and you have time, kind of like a timeline right here at the bottom, he can see each and every single moment as it's happening. And it's, he is always in the present I guess you could say, if that makes sense. Um, we, we get this from, from scriptures like Psalm 90 verse four. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it has passed or as a watch in the night. So a watch in the night was a soldier would, he would be up in a tower or something and he would sit for like maybe three or four hours on guard and then he'd be relieved. But that three or four hours, it was really, really easy because it was such a short period of time, he could recall everything that happened. That's what the psalmist is saying here. A thousand years, whenever it's passed, it, it just seems like yesterday to you. It's just like a watch in the night, it's, it's easy. So the, the idea, and this is kind of a poor illustration, um, because this is existing outside of time is something so foreign to us we can't fully understand it. But think if you if you have a novel that you're reading and, and it's a long novel, it's a long book, and you read it and you get done with it and you've read the whole book and then you pick it back up again and you f- kind of flip through the pages and just kind of highlight moments here and there and you say, oh yeah, I remember that and I remember that and, and you highlight ten parts throughout the throughout the book. Each one of those parts is going to be ca- recalled right back to your mind as vivid because you just got done reading it. So you know the whole story from front to end. You know how it ends. But you can go back to that moment and you can say, oh yeah, I remember that perfectly. And, and I know exactly what's going to happen. Because you're looking at the book and you can see the whole storyline from outside because you exist outside of the realm of that book, I guess you could say. Kind of in the same way, that's how God is eternal. Now there are, um, oh yeah, I've got a little illustration here to kind of show you kind of what I'm talking about. <coughs> and even again, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> wow. This doesn't do it fully justice. But you have God up here, and he can see before creation. He can see the life of Christ. He can see the year 1994, the final judgment is coming, eternity into the future. 
He can see all of that at the same time. He's fully aware of everything that's going on in every single one of those moments right at the same time. Now, this does have implications for us. His eternality is extremely important and it applies to us in many, many ways, but there's one implication that I want to give you. And it, what I want you to think about is the cross of Christ, Jesus on the cross. Um, what do we understand happened with Jesus at the cross? Jesus got on the cross and all of our sin, past, present, and future, was laid upon Jesus Christ, right? Amen. Praise you, sister. My beautiful wife, everybody. Um, all of our, <laughs> all of our sin, past, present, and future was laid upon Jesus Christ. Now, if God does not exist outside of time, then whenever Jesus goes to the cross and God pours out the wrath of sin upon Jesus, he's only able to pour out his wrath based upon all the sins that have been committed up until that point. Because if he's not outside of time, he doesn't know what happens after that. He doesn't know about the sins that you and I have committed. If God is not eternal, then there is no hope for you and I to be saved. Because what Jesus did was a definite point 2,000 years ago in time. It happened in time. Um, but because God exists outside of time, he can look and he can see every single sin that I've committed, every single sin that you've committed. And that wrath that he has built up towards that sin, he can take it and he can place it on Jesus. So without God's eternality, there is no hope for you and I. It's absolutely crucial that we understand that God is eternal. Next one we're going to talk about his, is his immutability. God does not change in his being and in his perfections. That's what immutability means. So in this next verse here, I want you to notice the compare and contrast that the psalmist does. <clears throat> of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now notice what he says this will do. They will perish, but you endure. They will all wear out like a garment. You change them like a raiment and they pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. The psalmist is speaking of the God who never changes. Everything that we see around us is constantly changing. Um, sin has corrupted everything and things decay and things die and we, we grow old and we grow moody and we get happy and, and we are constantly changing, but God never changes. The same thing is said in James chapter one, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't, he doesn't, he's not fickle. Um, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't grow moody. He doesn't just get really happy one day and then get really mad one day. Um, he is constantly the same. He never changes. Um, and now because it is true that God in his being and in, in his essence and his perfections, everything about him, that never changes, then what is also true is that God does not change in his purposes or his promises either. Now check this out in Malachi verse 3 or chapter three, verse six, for I, the Lord, do not change. So God is telling Malachi, I do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. When you understand the context, this is a really, really sweet verse. God has made a promise to Israel. He says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will not abandon you. You are my bride. I will restore you. I will redeem you. 
But Israel, what do we understand keeps happening? They keep disobeying God. They keep falling into sin. Um, But right here, God says, hey, I do not change. I have not forgotten the promise that I made. My purpose for you is not any different. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. The next verse here talks about the same thing. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's purpose never changes. He is committed to what he says he will do and the promises that he will make. Now, what is God's purpose? Ultimately, we understand that God's purpose is his glory and that will never change. This verse here, Isaiah 43, verse six, bring them from afar, all of my sons and my daughters, all those who were called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So God created us for his glory. If you bear the name of Christian, which means little Christ, the name of God, then you were created for the glory of God. And we see it as well here in Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. God says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God's purposes and his promises, Israel, you will not be consumed. And his purposes, my glory, I will not give to another. It never changes. And the same is true today. Thousands of years removed from every single promise that we have in the Old Testament. Thousands of years removed from from before the foundation of the earth when God decided that he would glorify his name through creating a people that he would redeem. Those promises and those purposes are exactly the same today. Right now, they have not changed. God has not changed. Now, the implications of this at first, it may not seem like that significant of a doctrine, but you see the significance of it whenever you start to think and you start to kind of ponder what would happen if God could change. Like in, in his being, so in his essence, okay, and all of the, the glorious attribute, the eternality that we've talked about just now, but think about mercy, love, justice, righteousness. If all of those things about God could change, then that means that God could either change for the better or he could change for the worse. So if he can change for the better, then that means that right now, He's not the best good in the world. That means he's not holy. That means he's not purely righteous. That means he's not God. But if God could change for the worse, then where could we be a thousand years from now? We could have just a tyrant of a God. But that's not the case. God never changes. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is love. He is light. And that never changes. That never changes for God. God's perfections could become more or less emphatic or unbalanced. God could decide to display his wrath all of a sudden much more than his love or his mercy, Um, but he is completely balanced. All of his attributes feed into the one God, and he is completely um, balanced in all of his attributes. Um, His purposes could change. He could decide, you know what? I'm not going to glorify myself, and therefore you that I created for my glory, I don't need you anymore. Wiping you out. Don't need you. Um, if God's promises could change, then he would not be trustworthy. We could not put our faith in him. Um, If he could decide, you know what, I'm not going to be faithful to what I've said, um, that's not God. 
So you see, the, you see the importance of the fact that God cannot change. You see how if we have a God that can change, things can get really bad for us really quickly. So the next one we're going to look at, God's omnipresence. Omni means all. Presence means presence. So all presence. God is everywhere. God has no size or shape. He is present in all places with his entire being. So we understand that... Um, Paul or John says that God is spirit. So that's that's the main fundamental verse that we understand that God is omnipresent because a spirit is everywhere, just like the Holy Spirit is everywhere. God, the Father, the Spirit is everywhere. But check this out in the Psalms. This is really a beautiful Psalm when you go and read it. Um, and what David is saying here is really beautiful. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So in a good way, God is Present everywhere to bless. Look at the last line here. Your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Um, No matter where you go, no matter where you're at, God is there. And if you are in him, if you are a follower of Jesus, he is there and he is present to bless you continually. You can rely upon that. No matter where you're at in life, you can call upon the Lord and he is there. But now, the same thing is also true on those who do not know the Lord. Amos 9, 1 through 4. I mean, this is a terrifying passage um, whenever you read it. And we're going to read it. So, not one of them shall flee away, God says. Not one of them shall escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search out and take them. And though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So God's enemies, there is nowhere that they can run. There is nowhere that they can go. You cannot escape the presence of God. So the implication of this, obviously, is that since God is everywhere, we cannot flee from him. So we must flee to him. We can escape anything else in this world, but we cannot escape God. We cannot run from God. So instead, why not run to him? If he's the only thing that we cannot escape, let us go to God. Um, Believers should never feel lonely, but also the wicked should never feel safe. So the next thing we're going to talk about, and I bet you're happy about this, is love. God eternally gives of himself to others for their joy. God eternally gives of himself to us for our joy. God is love. And that's exactly what 1 John 4, 8 says. We, we, Pastor Stephen preached on that passage. God is love. Um, this love existed in the Trinity before time began because in John 17, and I don't have the verse up here, but in John 17, Jesus is praying to God and he says, Father, Show them my glory that you had given me in love before the foundation of the earth. So before anything had been created within the Trinity, within the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there was love. 
God was already loving his son. The son was already loving the father. And this love was already being given to the spirit as well. Love already existed. So at the, at the base of everything, at the base of reality, what you find is love. Before creation, before anything, love is, was at the core of it all. Um, now, God's love is expressed most fully towards us in the cross. That's what we see in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you see here, we have a definition of what love is. In this is love, not that we loved God. So we cannot define love by what we feel. We cannot define love by what the affections that we have for God because that's not love, this says. It says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. So he's saying love is how God loved us. And then he says the way that God loved us, he says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if you want the clearest picture of love, if you want the most purest idea of what love is, you look at the cross. You look and you see what Jesus did. He went to, he was the propitiation for our sins. He was the payment for the penalty that we owed God because of our sin. He took that in our place. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. God is the epitome of love. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, and this love, this love is general. This is a general love that God has for all of, of humankind. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This love that God has extends to the entire created order, to the entire world, but also it is specific and it is pointed directly to you. Check this out in Galatians 2. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh I'm sorry, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's really interesting that Paul says that that way. Paul says that Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. And the same is true for you. You can write that. You can say that. You can claim that. God God's love that he has is not only just this, this general, surrounding everything, universal type love, but it is specific. He loves you. He loves you and you and you and you. Individually, perfectly, wholly, completely. Um, so the implication is that since God is eager to extravagantly give of himself to meet the needs of the lost, the lost can run to him. Because he loves them, he desires for them to be saved. And he has shown them his love by sending his son. Um, and for those of us who believe, we know that this love is poured out completely upon us in an almost overwhelming way every day. Last attribute that we're going to look at is God's wisdom. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. So, in Psalm 104, verse 24, he says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So all of the creation was created in wisdom. It was wise that God did what he did. And so as he made the trees, this was a wise thing. As he made the oceans, this was wise. And Really, when you step back and you look at all of creation and just the way that things work, 
Okay, so like, like trees. Think about a tree, okay? A tree, tree trunk, from here to the ground, all the way up, I mean, you know, 50 feet, 60 feet, huge trees that are in the world. And now rain falls, and it goes on the ground, and it goes to the base of this tree. And we also understand that gravity exists, right? Gravity pushes things down. But somehow, water goes up all the way up that tree, nourishes the whole thing. I don't know how that works. I mean, I'm sure there's like some kind of scientific explanation for it. I mean, but that's amazing. That's, that's a miracle. Um, the way that God's created order works is just, wow, that is beyond anything that I can understand. God is so wise for creating everything that he did. Romans 16 verse 27 says that God is the only wise God. And Job says that God is wise in heart in Job 9.4. And in Job 12.13, with him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Now that verse, I want us to look at that for just a second. With God are wisdom and might. Now put those two together. Okay, God has, God has wisdom and God has might. And now think of another verse, Romans eight twenty eight, For we know that God works all, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now that verse could not exist apart from God's wisdom and his might. Because God has wisdom. He can look at any situation that we're in and he can say, mm, yep, I can work that for good. I know how to do that. And with his might, he can actually make it happen. So you see the, the, these, these attributes that God has, his wisdom and his mind, his strength, his eternality, all these things work together for his glory and for our good. You take one of them away, it's not going to be possible. You can see all of these things work most fully in the cross. I know I've referenced that a couple times already, but you can see it work most fully in the cross. God existing outside of time sweeps up the sins of those who he would choose to redeem and he pours them upon his son. Okay, so our sins placed upon Jesus Christ, right? And now because God never changes, that purpose to redeem us is still true today. He has not given up on it. And because he is everywhere, he will chase every single one of us down in love, um, pouring out his love upon us, showing us the love that he has given us. And he does all of this in such a way to where our ultimate joy is achieved and his glory is known. Wisdom. It's amazing. Um, it's no wonder whenever we, we think about all that and how it works, Paul did the same thing. And in Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, if you ever get a chance to read all four of those chapters, it's, it's really amazing. But at the very end of Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, after just discussing all this, and it's just mind-blowing, it's so hard to understand, you can't, you can't fathom it. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. That is our God. That is who we serve. That is who has reached out and saved you. That is the God that has reached down and has opened the eyes of your heart to give you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Our God is the one who sent his son to die on a cross in our place. 
and our God was the one in the form of Jesus Christ who walked up to that cross to die. In Isaiah, there's a verse. He says, who has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him? The answer is nobody. Nobody has seen a God like that. Every other religion, you must work for their God. But our God works for us. Such love and compassion and mercy, I cannot understand. So in conclusion, there's, there's, there's one other thing we want to talk about, and then we'll have about 15, 20 minutes um, for discussion. Um, and so please, if you have questions, I want you to ask them, okay? Um, but when you, whenever, you, whenever you bring all this into focus, okay, and when you understand everything about God, you understand that, that he is outside of time, you understand that he has purposes and values that never change, his promises will never fail. If you understand that he is everywhere all at once and that he is exhibiting to us constantly his perfect love and his perfect wisdom, then what you understand that is that this life right now, as hard as it may be to understand, this world that we live in, this history that we are living out is the best of all possible worlds that there could be. Now, I know, what about sin? What about all this tragedy and just this heartbreak that goes on in the world. What about all that? Well, we understand that. What do we look at in God's purpose? God's purpose is to glorify himself, right? And his wisdom, in some way I don't know, is going to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And his glory will ultimately be the thing that we will celebrate. Because the glory of God is his purpose. He's not going to diminish that. He's not going to create a world in which the full amount of glory that he could receive is not going to be received. He's not going to create a world that, well, if I would have done it this way, I would have received more glory. No, his knowledge is unending. Everything that we are doing now, the life that we are living, this history that we're living out, is the best possible existence that we could have. Because God is who he is. Now, one day, when Jesus comes back, or if we die and go to be with him before he comes back, everything will be made right. And we will be able to look back and we will say, oh, wow, look at the wisdom of God. And that he, what I thought was, was horrible and tragic, and it, and it may be, he used that tragedy for good and for his glory. It's amazing. Um, and it's for the good of every single one of us. Every single one of us that have ever lived, that have ever existed. Okay, so think about 7 billion people on the planet now. Think about everybody who's ever lived, okay? And out of that, think of everybody who's ever put their faith in Jesus Christ, okay? So anytime God does anything, anything, something happens, it's for the good of 50 trillion of those people. There are 50 trillion good reasons why God does something. We may only understand one or two or none, but we have to trust and believe that this is the best that we can have, and we we live in that, and we trust God in that, because his purpose and his promises never change. Um, So we've got uh, 15 minutes until 7.30, Q&A. So we'll do this every week. We'll have Q&A. I I know some of you don't have your books. We've got more coming. I thought we were going to have some more tonight, um, but we didn't. The shippers were just late on that, which, which is a bummer because I paid for priority shipping and it didn't get here in time. 
Um, so, but just know that those books are coming. So you, we will have some probably Sunday or next week, whenever you show up. Um, and also, I need to get your guys' email addresses if you haven't already given it to me. And if you don't have one, that's fine because I'm going to be sending out emails throughout the week just letting you know what chapters to read in preparation for the next week. Um, I may send you like some blog articles or, or something like that to read that kind of corresponds with either what we've already talked about or something that we were going to talk about. Um, but uh, every week we'll be having Q&A right at the end. Okay, I'm going to devote 15 minutes to that um, because, I, because I want you guys to have questions. Okay, And now something else. I understand and I know that that today, and let, let me tell you, today's, this study, this lesson, that's going to be the hardest one. I mean, I understand we talked about some really abstract concepts and things like that, and, 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 it, and it was, it's, it's hard to understand, um, but it's absolutely crucial that we begin there, um, and just know that uh, we're going to be getting into a lot more concrete ideas and scriptures and things that are that are much easier to, to understand and to, and to deal with, um, so just um, don't give up because we're getting into some really cool stuff in the coming weeks. I mean, today was awesome. It was. Um, but uh, just, just hang in there.